Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be able to speak to you today as we begin the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread, another cycle of God's holy days. In the sermon today, I want to ask and answer several questions that will help us focus on the incredible privilege that God is offering to each one of us today. And we'll also focus on several challenges that we each face individually when God begins to work with us in a very personal way. I've entitled the sermon today, Questions for Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Questions we need to think about, ask ourselves during the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread. The first question I want to ask is an old question, but it's one we need to be constantly aware of. Uh, we need to be thinking about and never take for granted. And that question is, why are you here? Why are you here? Why am I here? You know, as children, we're here because our parents bring us. As young people, we're here, in many cases, because our parents are with us. But there's more to it than that. You know, in 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 7 and verse 14, it mentions young people who have one or two parents in the church. It says that they're holy. They're in a special category as far as God is concerned because you're being exposed to a way of life. <clears throat> you're being exposed to God's truth about the purpose of human life and why we're here. And this is something that many young people your age have no concept, no idea about. If you're here as an adult, you may be here because friends are here. You may be here because you're curious. Uh, you may have been here for 20 or 30 years or more. But we never want to forget the fact <clears throat> that we fall in a special category with God, especially young people and also adults. <clears throat> Turn, if you would, to John chapter 15 and verse 16, John 15:16, where Jesus was talking with his disciples on the night before he was crucified, actually at the Passover. And he wanted to cover basic things, fundamental aspects of being a Christian. <clears throat> In John 15, verse 16, it said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go forth and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. You know, sometimes <clears throat> we make comments like, well, I found the church, or, uh, you know, I found the truth. The truth is that God found us, that God called us, and then he chose us to work with right now. So Jesus said, you're here because I have chosen you to be here. You think about that. Put your name in there. I chose you, John, Sally, Sue, whatever your name might be. That Jesus Christ decided to call you, to choose you. You know, in John 6, it mentions that no one can come to Jesus Christ unless they are called, unless their mind has been opened. If your mind has been open to understand the truth, to understand the purpose of human life, that's a very special blessing. That's a very special privilege. There's nothing to take for granted. We never want to take that for granted. Your calling is a capacity to begin to see the truth, 
to begin to understand the truth, begin to to understand the plan of God. You know, many of you may have tried to convert your friends and relatives, maybe parents or children for that matter, and you can't call them. You can't convert them. They've got to come to see on their own. And that seeing and that capacity to understand has to do with God beginning to open their mind. So to be here because God called you, to be here because God has chosen to call you at this point in time, is a very special privilege. You know, you can read in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, the members there, verses 26, 27, and 28, where he says, Not many wise, not many mighty are called. God is not calling the world right now to understand his plan and purpose. He's calling a few. You know, the world is going to be called and have their chance later. But right now, he's offering an opportunity to a very few people. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. There's a number of interesting parables here in Matthew chapter 13. But beginning in verse 10, again, Christ is talking to his disciples. In Matthew chapter 13, his disciples actually came to him and said, why do you speak to the, you know, the people here that are listening to you? Why do you speak to the average person in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to more to him more shall be given. Um, Whoever does not have it shall be taken away. But Jesus told his disciples it has been given to them. It was given to them and it's been given to you and to me to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And that would include understanding the meaning of the biblical holy days. You know, the world, the Christian world, professing Christian world, can read these parables, and they they know something about the holy days. And the holy days, well, the Jews keep those things, but we don't have to in the New Testament. That's the understanding. But Jesus kept the Passover in the days of unleavened bread. The apostles kept the Passover in days of unleavened bread with him. The early church kept the Passover in the days of unleavened bread and the rest of the holy days. Those holy days picture the plan of God. They picture the plan of salvation for mankind. Seven steps pictured by the festivals. How God is working with people to prepare a group of people and eventually the whole world to become part of his family. One of the things that distinguishes the church of God is that we keep the holy days. We keep these festivals that picture the plan of God. Now, you've come to understand that by attending the church. Uh, Your children will come to understand that by keeping the holy days with you if you explain these things to them. But very quickly, those seven steps begin with the Passover that remind us of the death of Jesus Christ. He came to become the Savior of mankind, but the Savior of the world, John 4, 42. The Savior of the world, not just you and me, that our sins can be forgiven because he died to pay the penalties of those sins. The Passover reminds us every year of that incredible fact. 
The days of unleavened bread as we put leaven out of our homes remind us that we need to put sin out of our lives. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the sermon today. The day of Pentecost, which comes later, reminds us that we need God's Holy Spirit. We need God's Holy Spirit to help us with this process of growing and overcoming. And that God gives his spirit to those who obey him. That's why we need to understand about sin. Then the fall holy days, trumpets, pictures, the return of Jesus Christ. He's actually coming back to intervene in world affairs. That's something we can look forward to. It's something that's going to surprise the world, but we should not be surprised. Atonement pictures the fact that Satan is going to be bound. This is Satan's world today. That's why the world is so messed up. But the hope is when Christ returns, Satan is going to be bound and the evil influences are going to be eliminated. It's going to make for a very different world, a very exciting world to live in. Then the Feast of Tabernacles pictures the coming kingdom of God when the saints are going to reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. That's our opportunity now to become part of that, to prepare for that. It's an exciting opportunity. And then finally, the last great day pictures a time when all of mankind is going to have a chance to learn the truth, to learn the purpose of human life that you and I are being given an opportunity to learn today. These are the incredible opportunities that God is offering to each one of us today. Why are we called? Turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. We're just warming up here to, to get a perspective of why God is calling us today, the opportunities that we have today that we never want to take for granted. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Paul says, and he's writing to the church of Thessalonica, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Brethren, Beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You know, not that we were called, you know, millions of years ago, but God had a plan that began uh, years ago, centuries ago, thousands of years ago. But from the very beginning, he determined he would call a group of people. They're called first fruits in the Bible, and then eventually the rest of the world. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. He chose to have a group of people for salvation to be called first. To which he called you by our gospel. Paul was preaching the gospel about a coming kingdom of God. The very gospel that Jesus Christ was preaching. For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught whether by word or by our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. What we're told here is God has called us for salvation. 
I'll think about that for a minute. You know, we're talking about theological terms here and salvation and some other words we're going to use. These are foreign words for many people today. Many people today don't think in terms of salvation, uh, which has a very spiritual connotation. But when you look up the word salvation, it means to rescue from danger. The rescue from danger. There is a tribulation coming. Uh, There's going to be very difficult times ahead. But God is calling a group of people to prepare them and and really save them from the tribulation that is coming. If we get our act together, if we do what we need to do. But we were called for salvation, which means rescue from danger or save from destruction. A person that turns away from God is going to face uh, eternal death in the lake of fire. But we can be saved from those things if we make certain decisions now. The word salvation also means to be given a fresh start. When we realize our sins have been forgiven, now some people haven't committed a whole lot of sins, maybe others have. But it's a relief to know that those sins can be forgiven when we repent and when we change. Salvation is described as a gift. It's not something we earn. It's a gift that God offers to those that he's calling if we make certain changes. Other words like redemption and justification, we can be justified before God, set right before God when we repent of our sins. We can be reconciled to God. In this world, when we're going our own way, we're not reconciled to God, but we can be through God's plan. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, you can look that up on your own. But Paul warns there, don't neglect so great a salvation. Don't turn your back on what God has called you to understand. Don't throw that away. Don't drift away. And don't just leave. Paul is saying there, don't neglect this incredible gift of salvation that God is offering to each and every one of us. Now, these are the promises that God makes, that we can be called. He will work with us. uh, We can achieve salvation. We can gain eternal life. These are the rewards. But there are some things that we need to do. There are some things that we need to do, and we need to think about these things as we go through the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul mentions there to the church members in Philippi, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. There are things that we need to do. And we'll talk about those things in the sermon today. But we also read there that God will work with us. (coughs) That God will work with us as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and it was a big, bustling, uh, worldly city in the ancient Rome, in ancient, um, in the Roman Empire. Uh, There was a lot of trade routes that ran through there. There was a lot of coming and going. There was money to be made. There were uh, a lot of uh, sinful things going on in Corinth. In fact, the term to Corinthianize was basically to say to be really worldly, to be really worldly. So he's writing to this group of people. 
But he's talking about the Passover and how we should approach the Passover. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 26, Verse 27, let's start there. It says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread, talking about partaking of the wine and the bread during the Passover, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, Passover is not just a ritual. It's a very serious symbolic uh, practice. As we partake of the bread... We break it uh, as unleavened bread, picturing the unleavened life of Jesus Christ, that he lived perfectly for us, and then he sacrificed that life for us. The uh, wine pictures the blood of Jesus Christ. He died on a cross so that we could be forgiven, that we could have this fresh start. The Passover reminds us of this very serious um, um sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. But then it goes on, it says, but let a man or let a person examine himself. In other words, as we partake of the Passover, we need to examine ourselves and remember the sins that God forgave us of. We need to remember these things, the fact that we don't deserve forgiveness, but God has given us that. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. God sees. If he sees that we're partaking of the Passover and just taking it lightly and go back and sin again, uh, he does not take that lightly, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, what he's talking about is for taking the Passover very lightly and not really repenting, not really changing. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. You know, we can break the physical laws of God by overeating and by not exercising and uh, doing a bunch of things like that that damage our body. If we don't repent of those things, then we're going to get sick and we will die. You know, if you smoke, you're going to bring certain consequences on yourself. If you overdrink, uh, if you drink too much or you get involved with all kinds of sexual activities, you're going to wind up with sickness and disease and will die. So if we take lightly the fact that we can be forgiven, then there's going to be consequences. For if we would judge ourselves, if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, if we would examine ourselves and get rid of things that we realize are wrong, that will bring consequences on us, then we wouldn't have to be judged by God. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So the Passover, we observe to learn lessons, to appreciate the fact that we can have our sins forgiven and that we need to make sure that we don't go back into those sins again. So during the Days of Unleavened Bread, we really are to examine ourselves, to take some time as we go through the Days of Unleavened Bread, uh, to identify and get rid of things that do not belong in our lives. You know, if we want to be in the kingdom of God, we have to overcome some things. Go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. 
Paul is writing to Timothy and in writing to Titus to give them instructions of how to lead a congregation, how to work with God's people. But in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul says here, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. You know, the, the grace of God, grace is unmerited pardon. And that will bring salvation if we take advantage of the fact that we can be forgiven. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God, through his mercy, calls us, and through his mercy forgives our sins. But then we have to do our part. I was talking here about uh, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. The world will, will, will tempt us in many ways. You, know, you turn on your, your computer and all kinds of things pop up, and, and you're, you're faced with a decision. Do I look into this? Do I press this button? Do I leave? Uh, we must learn to deny worldly lust, to take us off in the wrong direction. We should live soberly, seriously, not... Uh, uh, in a goofy way, not in a silly way, uh, not in a dangerous way. We're to live righteously. And Psalm 119, verse 172, says, All thy commandments are righteousness. So we want to be righteous and live righteously. We've got to live by the commandments of God. We've got to make that a goal in our life. And we should be doing that during the days of unleavened bread especially. Uh, and live a godly life in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So these are things we need to be focusing on during the Days of Unleavened Bread especially. In Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, John is writing there letters to the seven churches. And it's interesting that It mentions in all seven of those letters that that the overcomers are going to be in the kingdom of God. Overcomers, people who face the challenges that they face, face them squarely, and get a handle on things that uh, really need to go and be put out of their lives, getting rid of the leaven that's in our lives. We've got to become overcomers. Maybe during the days of unleavened bread, you might want to make a list of things that you realize you need to overcome. Go through the booklet on the Ten Commandments, maybe one commandment a day. Uh, You'll need uh, a couple extra days, but you can cover two commandments in the same day, maybe one in the morning, one in the evening. But read through those and think about them and ask yourself, is there something here that fits? Is there a shoe that fits when I put this on? And then strive to get rid of that. Develop a plan to get rid of the things that don't belong in your life. And this is something we need to do. One other warning just to be aware of. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And this is something for those of us who have been in a church for quite some time. We need to think about these things. Because there's more to being in the kingdom of God than just attending church every week. There's more to being in the kingdom of God than just uh, keeping the holy days. In Matthew 7... Matthew 7, 
This is also part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus was talking with his disciples again about the fundamentals of Christianity. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So not everybody that knows about the kingdom of heaven, not everybody that wants to be in the kingdom of heaven, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he or she who does the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, we've got to learn to obey God. We've got to set that as a goal in our life, to obey our Heavenly Father. Many will say to me in that day when Christ returns, many will say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, preached sermons in your name? Have we not cast out demons, maybe done miracles in your name? And done many wonders in your name. But Jesus said, then I will declare unto them, I never knew you. You know, we never had a real deep personal relationship. You never really took serious the instructions that I gave you. Uh, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those of you who don't keep my commandments. Those who don't follow the instructions that I've given in my word. So for those of us who have been around for years, we need to remember these things. And I'm preaching to not just the choir, but to myself too. You know, we've got to get serious. We've got to focus on getting rid of the things that don't belong in our life so that we can actually be in the coming kingdom of God. The Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread are designed to help us appreciate the incredible opportunity that God is offering to us to call us and to choose us now to be called, to grant us his spirit, to work with us, to prepare us for the coming kingdom of God, and also to have our sins forgiven as we repent and as we change. So this is why we're here today, brethren. We're here because God has called us. He's chosen us to be called at this time, to work with us. So these are things we need to remember. And realize that not many are called today. Not many are chosen. Not many will be chosen. But we've got to get serious about our calling. We take seriously the Passover when we partake of the bread and wine that picture the broken body and the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. But there's also some other things that we need to do, some other questions that we need to ask. One of those questions, another question is, are you converted? Are you converted? How do you know you're converted? How converted are you? Now, why is this important? You know, Jesus mentions in Matthew 18, verse 3. Matthew 18, verse 3. Now, his disciples were basically arguing among themselves, and they argued at the Passover. They argued several other times. Who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? They were carnal. They didn't have God's spirit yet, but they they knew what the promise was. Just as many of you know what the promise is. To be called now is an opportunity to be in the kingdom of God, to gain eternal life, to reign with Jesus Christ on this earth, to live forever. You know, as we get older, we gain a much deeper appreciation of what it means to live forever. I was talking with one individual recently, and he said, uh, you know, I'd love to live forever. This is an older person. But he said, I think I'm going to have to die first. In other words, go in the grave, then come out in a resurrection. 
But Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 3, to his disciples, he said, unless you are converted, you will not be in the kingdom of God. Unless you are converted, and the scriptures say the same thing to us, unless we are converted, we're not going to be in the kingdom of God. In Acts 3, verse 19, it mentions there that we need to be repent and be converted so our sins can be blotted out. We need to repent and be converted so that our sins can be blotted out. If we don't repent, if we're not converted, then our sins will not be blotted out. It's just that simple. And then we won't be in the kingdom of God. Again, repentance and conversion are theological terms. And the world doesn't talk in theological terms today. These are kind of a foreign language to most people today. Repentance, conversion, repent from what? Convert from what to what? Um, They talk about converting uh, savings bonds to something else. Uh, It's not what it's talking about. Many young people today are not religious. They're nuns, as they're talked about not these uh, Catholic nuns, but they don't believe in anything. They don't, they're not part of any religious group because it's just not necessary. You can live your life without going to church. You can live with your life without praying. You can do all these things without being religious. You can live your life without religion. So people are told. But there's going to be a big gap one of these days. It's a big surprise. But let's define these terms for just a little bit, because these are foreign terms for many people today. But we need to have a clear understanding of these things. Conversion, in a spiritual sense, in a biblical sense, is more than just believing in God. It's more than just giving your heart to the Lord. It's more than just joining a church. That doesn't mean you're converted. These are practices uh, that do not indicate anything about conversion. You can keep the Sabbath and holy days. doesn't mean you are converted. Repentance and conversion is a process. Repentance and conversion is a process that takes place over time. It involves changes in every aspect of our life and making conscious changes in every aspect. It takes a lifetime. God gives us a lifetime in which to be converted, to grow in our conversion. Repentance and conversion is not not just something we do once at baptism and ah, uh, it's all over now. Now it's, it's downhill into the kingdom. No, repentance and conversion is a process that involves us, involves our relationship with God, letting him leading us, lead us and guide us. Conversion comes from the Old Testament word, a Hebrew word, sub, S-U-B. And it means to make a choice. You make a choice between God's way and the world's way, choosing right over wrong. Again, these are meaningless terms today for many people. Well, what's right? What's wrong? Nobody knows. The Bible defines these things. So conversion, the word in the Old Testament, means to make a choice, to turn back to God in repentance. Would you turn from one way to another? You can read David's attitude of repentance. You can see that in Psalm 51, where he committed a sin, but he said, God, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against you. Wash me off. Clean me up. Point me in the right direction. 
It's talking about his conversion or a deeper conversion. The word in the New Testament is epistrepho. It means to turn around, to turn from one direction to a different direction, to change. And this is what uh, Jesus was talking about in Matthew 18. Unless you are unless you are converted, you'll not be in the kingdom of God. And repentance is similar. <coughs> repentance is similar. In the Old Testament, the word is nakam, N-A-C-H-A-M, and it means to be sorry, to actually be broken up, to be sorry. In the New Testament, the word is metanoio, metanoio, M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O. It means to think differently or to reconsider what you've done. To do something, then you reconsider, maybe I didn't do the right thing. Maybe I should do something different. It means to turn from with sorrow from one direction to another. To turn with sorrow from one direction to another. Or to go in a different direction. Again, these, these are theological terms, and the world doesn't think in terms, terms of theology. I heard a joke one time about two ministers who went fishing. And they drove down this old road and uh, pulled off where there was a fishing hole. They started to fish, and they heard a car traveling quite rapidly down this old road. And uh, they thought, boy, he's really going fast. And then they heard the brakes screeching, and then a great big splash. And then everything was quiet. And they heard another car come down, same thing. Brake squealed, big splash, and then things were silent. So the one minister gets up and he said, i got to check on this, find out what's happening. He goes over there and he finds the bridge was out. It was an old bridge, the bottom was broken, and the cars went up, saw what was there, and they went in the water and drifted downstream. So they went back to fishing and said, you know, that's terrible these things are happening. They heard another car coming down the road. So he looked around, there was a piece of cardboard laying by a fire, and there was a piece of charcoal there. So he, he wrote something on this piece of cardboard, and he runs up to the road as this car coming down the road, starts waving this sign out in the middle of the road. The driver starts blowing his horn, get out of the way! So he jumped out of the way, and the car went up into the water and splashed and floated down the river. He, the minister came back to his friend and said, you know, this, this is terrible. And the other minister said, what did you put on your sign? Why didn't they stop? What did you put on your sign? He held it up and it said, repent. Repent. It doesn't mean anything to drivers today. It doesn't mean turn around and go in a different direction. But the minister was thinking in theological terms. So we've got to define these terms today in our own minds. Repentance means turning with sorrow when we realize we've broken the laws of God that caused Jesus Christ to die. We need to understand that. Repentance, turning with sorrow from a former way of life to a different way of life because our sins can be blotted out. Now, sin is also something we need to define. Otherwise, uh, it's going to be meaningless. In 1 John 3, 4, it says sin is a transgression of the law. Sin is breaking the laws of God. And those laws are outlined in the Ten Commandments. They're outlined in the Ten Commandments. As I mentioned before, it would be good during the Days of Unleavened Bread 
to read through the booklet on the Ten Commandments, think about them, meditate on what you're reading, and maybe make a list of things that you recognize you need to change. And then develop a plan. Develop a plan. How am I going to stop doing this? How am I going to stop doing that? You know, for a number of years, I taught health education courses. And one of the uh, approaches for people that wanted to stop smoking was to replace the smoking behavior with another behavior. You replace the bad behavior with something that's incompatible with that bad behavior. And one of the recommended approaches was to cut up some carrots and celery, keep them in your refrigerator. And then whenever you were tempted to smoke, go to the refrigerator, get out the carrots and celery, and you've got to hold it in your fingers. And you can't hold a cigarette and the carrot or celery cut up sticks at the same time. So you do something else. You do something else. Again, if you are striving to be a Christian, you will also be praying and also asking God, give me the strength, help me to do what's right, not what's wrong, reminding ourselves that breaking the laws of God make a mockery of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So there are things that we can do. But sin is a transgression of the law. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where some of these sins are defined. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and they, they knew what sin was, or they were learning what sin was, because a number of these things that Paul lists were going on every day, and they were tempted with every day. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 9 to 11. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, as we defined earlier in Psalm 119, verse 172, says, All thy commandments are righteousness. So unrighteousness would be breaking the commandments of God. So as Paul mentions here, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous, those who break the laws of God, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And then he lists a number of sinful behaviors. Neither fornicators, and that's sex outside of marriage or sex before marriage, or idolaters, people that are worshiping idols, in uh, Paul's day, they were worshiping uh, Athena. They were, were worshiping various Greek and Roman gods. Today, we worship um, maybe uh, the car that we want to buy. We're lusting for that. We worship other things, worship ourselves, our self-image. But he says, neither fornicators nor uh, idolaters nor adulterers, this is sex outside of marriage when you're married, nor homosexuals, the Bible does talk about it, it says this is an abomination, this is a sin, or sodomites, people who are doing sexual immoral things, nor thieves, thou shalt not steal, nor covetous people, people that are lusting and coveting after other things, or drunkards, or revelers, you know, party, 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 or extortioners, or you're extorting money from other people, uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul makes it very plain. These are things that 
we can't do or can't be tempted to do. These are also mentioned in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, that people that are cowards abominable, do abominable things, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, liars, idolaters, will basically go to the lake of fire if they don't repent, if they don't recognize that these things are wrong, and if they don't repent. I think most of us here understand these things as being sins. But David also mentioned in Psalm 90, verse 8, Psalm 90, verse 8, he talks about secret sins, secret sins that God is aware of, that other people might not be aware of. These are things that we might be doing when nobody else is watching or that nobody else sees. One thing I'd like to mention here is when you, go for, you can read through 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through about 11. And it talks about there the examples of the Israelites were recorded in the Old Testament, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery. But it also mentions complainers or murmurers as being sinful behaviors where you're you're constantly moaning and groaning or complaining. You know, I, I don't like what the church teaches. I don't agree with what the church teaches. You know, I, I don't I don't really like uh, uh, Mr. Weston or I didn't like Dr. Meredith or I don't like the Council of Elders or uh, whoever. The Israelites had a real problem with murmuring. You look up the word. Uh, it's used about 40 or 50 times in the Bible. Murmurers, complainers. Very interesting if you look at Numbers chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. But in Numbers chapter 12, and this was right after God told Moses to appoint 70 other leaders. And up to that point, it was basically Moses and Miriam and Aaron that were in charge of everything. But then God says appoint 70 others to help with the administration uh, with the nation. It was right after that that Moses, excuse me, that um, Miriam and Aaron began to complain. They picked out an issue, an aspect of Moses' life that they wanted to focus on. And they both wound up with problems as a result. Miriam became leprous. God doesn't appreciate those things. In Numbers 14, the whole congregation began to complain against Moses. You brought us out here to the wilderness to kill us. Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt where we had uh, meat to eat and we had food to eat and so on, but you brought us out here to kill us. And the congregation suffered a serious loss of lives because they were complaining against Moses, the man that God had chosen to use at that time. And then in number 16, Korah, who was a Levite, got 250 other leaders in Israel and they were complaining about Moses. Now, it doesn't tell us what exactly they were complaining about other than, Moses, you take too much authority on yourself. Now, Moses was coming from a military background. He had apparently been a general in uh, one of Pharaoh's armors, ar- uh, armies, and he could have been maybe a little bit, uh, you do it this way, you do it that way, giving orders. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there was something there that Korah was able to get two other leaders, and then 250 other leading individuals to complain against Moses and get basically to get on their side against Moses. 
And God basically said, I'm going to open up the earth, stand back, and they disappeared. But this, this murmuring was a real problem for the Israelites. And it's no, and it's no different today. You know, we have these little stories that we talk about, roast minister, where people go home after church and then they say what they don't like about the minister or about other leaders in the church. You know, we can't do this. I would say these are probably more of the, some of the secret sins that the Bible doesn't really elucidate on, doesn't explain a whole lot, but it's there. When that word is used, complainers and murmurers, 50-some times in the Bible. So this is something we might want to look at, too, as we examine ourselves, as we approach and go through the days of unleavened bread. And what are some of the marks of a converted person? How can we evaluate how converted we are? Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 says, if you obey God, you're going to be blessed. If your life is really difficult, you're not being blessed, maybe look, uh, do some self-evaluation. What am I doing wrong that could change? that would bring blessings instead of consequences. Uh, Matthew 5:48, where Jesus was again talking with his disciples, he says, strive to become perfect. Be you therefore perfect. Now, none of us are perfect. But what that word means, it means spiritually mature. Spiritually mature, where you, you, you see the big picture and you're striving to stay within the guidelines that God gives us. Paul mentions in Romans 6, 4, that we need to walk in newness of life. In other words, we, we change direction when God calls us. When we repent and change, we, we go in a different direction. We strive to walk in newness of life, to live God's way, to follow his instructions. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, we want to strive to develop and exercise the fruits of God's spirit. We, we literally try to do that. Love, joy, peace, patience. You know, we sometimes we have to be very patient with people that we, that we want to love because they'll upset us one way or the other. To be patient with people that uh, uh, bug us, that irritate us, you're showing love is being patient, or can be showing. Being patient can be showing love. But these are things we actually want to strive to do and get rid of and stop doing the, the hateful comments, the, the snide comments, uh, wrong actions. But sitting down on Friday night sometime and just kind of read through Galatians chapter 5 and ask yourself, where has the needle been? Where has my behavior been this past week? Is it over here on the works of the flesh? Or is it over here on the works of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit? And how can I make progress next week and not slip back over here? Now, these are the, you know, the Bible talks about leavening as being a type of sin. And as we go through the days of unleavened bread, and as we eat these unleavened bread, pieces of unleavened bread, we need to be thinking about, I need to get rid of the leavening and eat unleavened bread. We need to feed on the word of God, which is the unleavened bread that we need to be thinking about during the days of unleavened bread. So question number two was basically, uh, <clears throat> how converted are you? Maybe think about that as we go through the Days of Unleavened Bread. How can I become more converted? 
How can God work with me? What can he show me? And ask God to show you what you need to change. The third question, how strong are your convictions? How strong are your convictions? How deeply do you hold your beliefs about what's true and false, about what's right and wrong? Um, the word convict is in the Greek, elencho, E-L-E-N-C-H-O, which means convict, convince, a rebuke, um, to show a fault, in other words, to find out what faults are, get rid of them. And we've got to have strong convictions. You know, Joshua was told by God in Joshua chapter 1 to be strong, to be strong and to walk in the footsteps, basically to obey the law, to be strong and obey the laws of God. In Joshua 24, verses 14 to 15, where Joshua was kind of trying to stir up the Israelites uh, prior to his death and departure. He said, me and my house will serve the Lord. You know, what are you going to do? Me and my house will serve the Lord. What are you going to do? How can you develop strong convictions? This is something to think about, especially as we go through the days of unleavened bread. How can I grow in strength and convictions? Mr. Armstrong used to mention a lot. Mr. Meredith has mentioned the same thing. Mr. Weston has done the same thing. We all do. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul wrote there, uh, as he was concluding his letter to the church in Thessalonica, he says, prove all things, examine everything. If you're going to believe something and choose to believe it, examine it, prove it. Is it right? Is it right? Is it true? Prove all things and hold fast to those things that are right and true. And we need to prove for yourself. You need to do it and show your children how to do this. Does God exist? When you pray, is there someone there that hears your prayers? How do you know? You need to prove that God exists. Go through the booklet that we've produced on the real God. You know, that booklet was written, but there's all kinds of material available on the subject. Does God exist? When you pray, do you know that God is listening? Prove that God exists. You also need to prove that this Bible, is this the inspired word of God? How different is it from the Koran? How different is it from the teachings of Buddha? How different is it from the writings of Confucius? You know, this book is incredible. It's been preserved. And all these arguments that, well, we don't know whether it's right or wrong and just a bunch of stories. You need to know in your own mind that this book is true. This book is true. You know, David mentions in the Psalms, read through Psalm 119, verse 142, where he says, all your word is true. All your word is true. David knew that. He was convicted of that. We need to know that, brethren. We need to be convicted of that. You need to know where God's church is today. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build it, my church, and it's not going to die. It's going to be around. Mr. Armstrong read those verses years ago, and he realized if the Bible is true, 
And if this verse is true, then the church that Jesus Christ founded should be around somewhere, and I should be able to find it. And he began to look for for a group that was keeping the Sabbath and the holy days and a number of other things, and he was able to narrow it down. And the group that he came in contact with was part of the true church. It had drifted away in a number of areas. But um, God used Mr. Armstrong to restore a number of truths. You need to know where the church of God is today. You need to know that. You need to nail that down. We've got some booklets, God's Church Through the Ages. And where is God's church today? Go through those, but you need to know. You also need to be able to study the Bible and explain the Bible, 2 Timothy 2.15, to study so that you can explain the Scriptures to yourself and to any others that may ask. Part of our job in the coming kingdom of God is going to be to say, this is the way, walk you in it. Isaiah 30, verses 20 and 21. Part of our job is going to be to teach the Word of God. You can't teach what you don't know. You can't teach in a convincing way that you're not something that you're not convinced about. So these are things we want to make some changes in our lives so that we can be building strong convictions. The third question or fourth question I want to address is, do you have compassion? Do you have compassion or are you a calloused person? You know, we live in a period of time where people are becoming very calloused. Um, Go back to Matthew 24, I think is the scripture that I want. Matthew 24. I brought a different Bible here this afternoon. The basic this is because of because of lawlessness or wickedness, the love of many will wax cold. And we're living in a lawless age today. People do things, they can get away with it, and they really don't care what the effects are on somebody else. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks about this Conditions that will exist towards the end of the age. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. It says, Know this in the last days, perilous, difficult, terrible times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. They only think about themselves. They don't think about other people. Lovers of money, very materialistic, boasters, proud, blasphemers, you know, making fun of God, making fun of the Bible, making fun of anybody that believes in God or the Bible. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderous, uh, without self-control. You just fly off the handle. Brutal and despisers of good. Compassion is something that's missing from our society today. And yet Jesus Christ... Uh, <clears throat> had compassion. You know, he healed the sick. These weren't converted people. They just knew that he was healing and they wanted to get healed. So he healed them. People came and followed him, listened to him. They were hungry. 
and he multiplied the loaves and fishes, and he fed them because they were hungry. Jesus Christ was a compassionate person. You read in Matthew 23. Let's go there, Matthew 23 and verse 37. Jesus Christ came to his own. He came to the Jews, and they rejected him. They rejected him. They didn't listen to him. They persecuted him and eventually killed him, or at least had the Romans to kill him. But Matthew 23, he makes this very interesting observation. He says, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. He's talking about their history. You know, they put to death Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Not Ezekiel, but others. And stones those who are sent to her. And Paul was stoned several different times. How often, I'm speaking about himself, how often I wanted to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks and puts her wings out over her chicks. Uh, but you were not willing. Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how many times would I have... I, I was concerned about you, wanted to heal you, wanted to do this, wanted to do that. Jesus Christ was a man of compassion. We need to develop those same qualities. You know, John writes, <clears throat> James and John were called by Jesus Christ the sons of thunder because <laughs> they were ready to call lightning down on people who weren't doing the right thing. But when you read First John chapter 2, first couple of verses there, John in his old age, writing 90 A.D., he says, my little children. In other words, he had mellowed. He had mellowed. He, was, he mellowed with his conversion. He became more like Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something else. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. In verse 1, it says, beloved, now I write to you, I'll get there yet. First Peter, not Second Peter. Go to First Peter chapter three and verse one. Paul is giving advice. Peter is giving advice here to men and women, husbands and wives. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they're unconverted, they without the word, without your preaching, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Down in verse 7, he addresses the husbands. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, with your wives, with understanding. They're realizing they think differently, they function differently, they have different opinions. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. Then verses 8 and 9, finally, all of you, talking about husbands and wives and, and children and uh, even slaves that they had at that time. Uh, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may, incre may inherit a blessing. But he said there in verse 8, he says, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion, having concern for one another. 
Jesus Christ was a compassionate leader. Peter is talking to wives and husbands here to be compassionate for one another. And then in Philippians 2, 5, Paul mentions there, let this mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ. He died for us because he loved the world. He came to become the savior of the world. This is the one who gave his life that we celebrate on the Passover. Brethren, we're here during the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover season because God has called us. God has chosen to work with us. He's revealed to us his plan and purpose for mankind, plan and purpose for human life. But we've been called to become first fruits. We've been called to grow and overcome, to change, to repent, to be converted. This is what we need to be focusing on today during the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread. God has made promises to us of eternal life, becoming part of his family, but there are things that we're required to do. And during the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread, let's focus on what we need to do. Ask ourselves, why are we here? Come to understand the incredible privilege we're being given at this time. Do we have compassion? Are we growing in our conversion? Are we developing really strong convictions? Brethren, as we go through the days of unleavened bread and the Passover season, let's focus on the blessings that God has given us of calling us at this time, but let's also focus on meeting the challenges that we have today to repent, to be converted, and to grow and to change. And let's use this period of time so that we can glorify God and become part of his family.